I use loosely because you never know who these people may be. Some you just met, some you know from way Hi, I'm Kevin Peterson. This is the Geek and Friends podcast. They're not as funny as they think they are. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Geek and Friends podcast. This one's actually come thick and fast from the last one. And I'm hugely fortunate to be joined by Daniel Norcross of Test Match Special. Hello, Dan. How are you? You who? I am. I'm as well as a man can be in November. I can see light at the end of the tunnel. It is without a doubt, without any argument. I don't want to hear from anybody saying they disagree. The worst month of the year, bar none. It's dark, but it's not as dark as it's going to be. It's cold, but it's not as cold as it's going to be. It's it's dismal. It's like the, it's the season of colds and sniffs and lemsips and rubbish. It's abysmal. But um, so far, it's been quite entertaining. November, as entertaining as a November can be, I'd say. Yes, yeah, but well, I actually quite like. As much as people are sad when the summer goes, and I'm always sad when the summer goes because you can't go and watch cricket mm. live. But there's so much cricket that happens over the winter because of course when during our summer the only people that are playing cricket are us here in this country really isn't it you know there's a few other bits and pieces that go around and all the rest of it so you might see some cricket in south africa or zimbabwe or some in the caribbean but broadly speaking it's kind of just the english summer right yeah then you get to november december i had a day the other day where i watched England playing against Sri Lanka in a test match, right? Then New Zealand playing against Pakistan in a test match. Then there was, uh, I think there might have been like, I'm trying to think what it was. Then I think I might have watched some... Was that Australia? Yeah, yeah, there was an Australia-South Africa 2020. And then I watched the ICC Women's World T20. So I had like... 15 hours of consecutive cricket that I could I watch if I that. wanted. I can read that. I did 36 hours for Red Nose Day in 2000, and, and it started with New Zealand v England at 9.30 at night till 4.30 in the morning, which overlapped with India against Australia, when India whitewashed Australia. It was a very amusing series, as I recall, um, which was 4 in the morning till 11. Then there was a Zimbabwe one-day international that was day-night, and that went on from 11 till about 7. There was then an overlap of something, which I can't quite remember. And then England, New Zealand started again and India, Australia started again. So we did 36 hours without sleep uh, for a charity commentary thon, um, which was which was the most most challenging, but most fun thing I think um, I've ever done in commentary. That was that was absolutely nuts. So you're right. Winter does have its compensations. And, you know, we've just had England playing against Sri Lanka and gloriously um, New Zealand playing against Pakistan you've got to try and remember the number of the channel that you last saw it on because they, they didn't say the channel that I saw it on didn't seem to have the one day internationals by which I, I'd forgotten that it was channel I think 729 on Sky and was frantically searching around and couldn't find it you know and I was getting like alerts about wickets falling and, um, and, and just about managed to squeeze in the last 45 minutes of that epic test match between Pakistan, New Zealand that ended the other day with a four-run win. What a game of cricket that was. Uh, the only thing it missed was Faza Mahmood um, saying, um, why did he do that? As Hassan Ali, quite majestically and in the most Pakistan fashion possible, smashed the ball out to deep mid-wicket when Pakistan needed 10 to win, two wickets in hand, and Azhar Ali unbeaten at the other end. It was, it was just, it was beautiful, wasn't it? it and so, yeah, I take your point. November does compensations, but it's it's still scant consolation for the fact that it gets dark pretty much before countdown is over, which is something that does depress me. Well, that's a little bit about the whole daylight savings thing, isn't it? We've been that off and it wouldn't actually get dark till six. Tell me about it. Although that's not strictly speaking true, it'd be five twenty. But yes, uh, although you're in West. Yeah, no, I, 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 you're right. I am further west, so it's probably it's it's dark by five p.m. here. That tends to be mm-hmm. the point when it gets dark. Anyway, that's not particularly exciting for people to listen to us talking about the point that the sun sets. But yeah, no, it would be better if we didn't have daylight savings and the whole uh, all moving the clocks forward and back, which just stresses everybody out. Um, so yeah, no, but it's because I mean, uh, what I primarily wanted to talk to you about was I wanted to talk to you about this England 
Sri Lanka second test, which I thought was an absolute belter. I think the thing I enjoyed most about it throughout the whole test was on day one, Sam Curran played a match-winning innings of 64, right? Yeah. Then on day two, Roshan Silva played a match-winning innings of 85. <laughs> yes. Right? And then on day three, Joe Root played a match-winning innings of 124. And then on day four, I thought Angelo Matthews could have potentially played a match-winning innings of 88. So it was kind of... Well, he did. He did. He did. As it might actually have been a match ring in ease if it hadn't been for the rain. Um, those two wickets after T were, were, were what did it, wasn't it? If that rain had just come that little bit earlier, you'd think that if Sri Lanka had started the day with five wickets on day five in hand, you could see them winning that game. You know, And it's not that unusual in Palakelli because I think we established on, uh, on the cricket social that Candy Palakelli has one of the highest scoring third and fourth innings in in world cricket. So really, I mean, everybody just sort of misread the pitch, misread the conditions, didn't look at history, didn't understand that this may be a pitch that turns, but it doesn't crumble. You know, it, there's so many supposed truths in cricket, aren't there, that if it starts turning, you can't see it getting any better. Every commentator says this, I can't see it getting any better. Well, it did get better. And you've seen pitches like that do that. It's amazing how many of these sort of uh, cliches that we use in cricket are based on really nothing. They're sort of based more on on English pitches deteriorating, uh, Indian pitches deteriorating, and uh, UAE pitches, which definitely deteriorate. But in Candy, it didn't, partly, I think, because of the time of year. So you're playing during the monsoon season. Um I don't think it's in a crumbly state. It's not kind of biscuity, is it? And even though there were bits of dust coming up, I think that the underlying firmness meant that that wicket, if anything, got a bit slower. It meant that the turn got slower. And in a strange sort of way, it was probably easier to bat in the fourth innings than any other time. That What made it difficult was the pressure of you know having to get 301 runs to win the game when you're 1-0 down in the series. So, um, yeah, it was just a perfect game of cricket in any way. In every way, I say that the only way it could have been made more perfect was if England had won it by four runs or fewer so that we could have spent this entire podcast trying to understand what the hell Maria Erasmus was doing, deducting five runs or rather adding five runs to England's score for deliberate short running. Never seen that in my life. It's, and, I think it's Kyron Pollard, isn't it, that caused this? Is it? Tell me, tell me. I need to understand because I still don't understand it. So basically, right, I think, so what the rule is in, in essence trying to prevent, right, is that what you could do, right, is you could deliberately run short, yeah, and get yourself back on strike, right? Ah. So it was in a Mumbai Indians game, right, last year, or no, two years ago. So it had been, oh no, last year, two, May... So basically, what he did was, it was a final over, a final thing of the over, of the final over, and he wanted to get himself back on strike, right? So what yeah. he's realised is, if you run two runs but run the second one short, you still end up with one run but end up back on strike. Surely you've got to run the first one short, haven't you? Yeah, so yeah, you, you're right. You do need to run the first one short. So, so you run, so you run the first one short. And then you get back, but you've got to run quite a long. So I see. So you've got to run quite quite close to the the crease. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just one of those things where you have a tussle in the middle of the pitch, then you come back, and no runs given, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. If you if you if you if you're listening to this podcast and you Google it, Google Kyron Pollard Mumbai Indians run short, and you'll find a photo of it. And he's probably I don't know a yard outside of the right. crease. Yeah. And then he I gets see. back down. And I think the umpire he didn't miss it or ever. But he ended up having a single and getting himself back on strike, right? Um, right. So, and the suggestion was that he deliberately ran short. So I think that... Yeah, because I mean, oh, that no, was no, no, just... No, 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 So I think that law already existed, actually. But that's kind of, that's the most... I don't think it was actually... I think that law wasn't written for Pollard afterwards, actually, thinking about it. I think it already existed. Yeah. So basically, that's what it's trying to do. So what you could do is you could essence end up with a single and end up back on strike or end up with two runs and back on strike by running deliberately short and getting yourself back on strike if you're batting with a tail ender. Yes, I get that. They need to have deliberately done it. Yeah. 
And there was, so for a start, what I suppose in a way he might have done if, uh, well, no, he just didn't. He just didn't. I mean, it was just, it was just a crazy decision. Well, it's one of those things, isn't it, that it's a lot of it's about intention, isn't it? So to be able to prove that something's deliberate is quite subjective, isn't it? It's like the whole law now when someone throws the ball at the stump and it hits the batsman. And then the umpire has to decide whether or not they've deliberately altered course to decide whether or not they should be given That's right. out. So it's one of those things, isn't it? So I suppose whether or not he did it deliberately or not is is kind of one of those things. Um, you know, I know. Yeah, but you're right. It would have been a lot better if England had won as a result of those two runs. Because as we quite often say on this podcast, funny cricket is better than good cricket again i thought there was a moment on that fifth day you talk about match winning innings being played on every day i thought even though it was a really really short fifth day it started so easily didn't it i mean the field was back we spent ages discussing why the field was back um runs were coming just singles were coming so easily it was so bizarre 15 singles i think it was were taken in about five overs with nary an alarm and it was only when um, Dick Weller decided to try and play an Owen Morgan shot over the top of extra cover, uh, inside out, so to speak, that, uh, that the game was finally, you know, it, it finally went England's way. But it's been a feature of this test series, hasn't it? I think there's something that coaches impart when they play in Sri Lanka because it's very specific to Sri Lanka. Um, Sri Lanka average the concession of one run every 3.1 balls a single that is which is the most profligate how am i going to describe this it's the most profligate giving away of a single in world cricket and part of it is i think that everybody in Sri Lanka just does this you know when Sri Lanka were 42 for four at one point was that the first test at Gaul after lunch Matthews came out to bat and Root had a short leg, a slip, short mid-wicket, short extra cover, and everyone else on the boundary to the first ball after lunch with a score 42 for four. So obviously, you know, the coaches, people like Bayliss, who's been out there a lot, are saying, well, you know, boundaries is what you've got to, you've got to, you've got to stop the boundaries. You can afford to give away singles. And both sides did it. So you got this unusually bizarre sense that runs were going to come all the time and wickets were going to come all the time it felt like cricket the like of which you don't normally see and I suppose the other thing to remember here is that England hardly ever have played in Sri Lanka you know we can remember them all because there's so few of them it's the first time we've played there in Yonks I think what is it the is this the third three three match series that England will have played against Sri Lanka since the they... last one would have been when Peterson played it was the 2012 would have been the last one right before this yeah, I think so, ago. yeah. The one, and the one before that was years before that as well. There was a massive gap. So actually, as a watcher, what I found really wonderful about it was that I wasn't remotely attuned to the rhythms of Sri Lankan cricket. You don't get to see a lot of it on the TV because if Sri Lanka are playing New Zealand, you know, it's not on Sky and you can't find it anywhere. So actually, uh, my cricketing education lacks an awareness of the rhythms of cricket in Sri Lanka in a way that, you know, I know what cricket looks like everywhere else in the world, I reckon. I mean, with the possible exception of Bangladesh, although I've been out there myself, so I, I know it now. But, you know, you sort of know what to expect in Australia, India, New Zealand, South Africa, West Indies, don't you? UAE especially. See, loads of cricket in the UAE. You know exactly what's going to happen most of the time. Um, runs up top. People are going to complain about the game being boring and slow. And they're going to be made to look daft when it cascades into a fantastic fifth day finish, which is what always happens. In but the that doesn't—that doesn't prevent those first three and a half days from being deadly dull. That's oh. what always amuses me about those UAE tests. Everyone's like, "Oh, that was amazing, wasn't it?" And you're like, "Well, no, it was good for it was good for fifty overs, yeah. but the four hundred that preceded it were dreadful." I mean, overs. it's just that's just that's just being tantric, though, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit like having a really long um, road trip to the south of France and you get through Normandy and sort of industrialised bits and it's really crap. And then it sort of starts to pick up by the time you get down past Avignon, Poitiers, and then you who you're in the Mediterranean and it's all giggly and fun. And you dive in the sea and it's fantastic. So, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's how I see a five day test in the UAE. It's like a, 
long, arduous trip with your parents aged 12 in a car to the south of France. Yeah. Dubai is the worst of the time, doesn't it? Three days of, of grinding tedium, followed by a brilliant denouement. But in Ibu Zibi, as Atif Nawaz calls it, Abu Dhabi to other normal human beings, um, there you actually get really quite depressed scores. You know, it's quite common for scores to be, as, as we've just seen with the Pakistan-New Zealand um, series, you know, in the 200s and then dropping a bit, if anything. So, you know, UAE is not... Is, the UAE gets bad raps for me. I mean, I'm not sure it's a place that particularly wants to hang around touring because it's, you know, it's expensive and, and monochrome. But in terms of the pitches, I mean, there's no spectators either. But in terms of the, the matches that you watch, I actually, I sort of relish... A UAE game, you know, we had some, they've had some corkers there again this year, haven't they? There was Pakistan against Australia providing great entertainment, and and I know I'm taking this off topic. I'm going to bring us back to Sri Lanka. Um, these Sri Lanka tests, I think, have been superb because the pitches have been kind of ideal, haven't they? And the approach that both sides have taken has been eccentric. I, I mean, I've enjoyed it, but both attacking and the captaincy has been curiously defensive in the field, which has allowed for this sort of steady stream of runs and steady stream of wickets. And the monsoon has somehow relented, which is quite... Well, we're into, we're into late November now, aren't we? So that's kind of the point where it starts. Yeah. It's October. Yeah. It's October where playing cricket is... Impossible. Questionable. Uh, I was going to say questionable. A, it is the SSC, isn't it, the next one? because um, there are five grounds in, in Colombo, Pramadasa and numerous others, I think we're at the SSC, that Sri Lanka will look at this 2-0 down and say, OK, let's let's restore some um, pride with a high-scoring ball draw. I hope they don't. I hope they think let's restore some pride by bowling England out cheaply by making a ball rag early because uh, that will be fun to watch as well. well. I I the, love it when wickets tumble. It's just great, isn't it? The interesting thing, I think, when you're saying, you know, let's take wickets by making it rag early, as much as Dan Anjaya took six wickets, I actually think, particularly Leach and Ali, but to a certain extent Rashid, I think the England spinners, as far as a wicket-taking threat is concerned, were more of a threat throughout this match than the Sri Lankan spinners. Um, I'd go along with that, yeah. I would, I would, I would definitely go along with that. I so, mean, I mean, it's kind of... It, it, so then, if you're thinking that, if they're thinking, right, OK, let's have a pitch that's just absolutely ragging, is that actually like it almost was when England won in India in 2012 with Panasar and Swan doing so well? Yeah. Kind of playing into the opposition's hands. And there's a few interesting points, I think, in that little statement. One is... When was the last time England won a test series, either home or away, with the complete absence of Stuart Broad? I struggle to yeah. think of one, right? Two, yeah. I think it says something about the state of Sri Lankan cricket as things stand. I think it's probably as poor now as it's been since their introduction to test cricket in the 80s. But Sri Lanka absolutely marmalised South Africa in July with a side that was pretty similar. I mean, virtually the same, really. Arath was three months younger, but, you know, still virtually 40. Chandimal was available, yes. Um, they're still having issues with, with Angelo Matthews. I mean, I, I think that sometimes we can be quick to assume that the oppo must be terrible if England have won. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I didn't watch much of that. I don't think I've... I'm not sure if I watched that. Sri Lanka, South Africa series. Um, and you kind of go on... I mean, I suppose I'm in, I'm in danger of doing something that really pisses me off when other people do it, which is judge cricket on the match that just happened rather than in a greater context. But they just seemed just really beige and uninteresting and just a bit shit in these tests. Um, and I think if England were to turn up with a team that weren't quite as hilariously flawed... <laughs> as this one is, then you can imagine them winning even more handsomely. But having said that, at the end of the last podcast I did last week, I was like, oh, England will piss all over Sri Lanka in this second test. But actually, throughout this game, there was it was properly in the balance, wasn't it? I mean, if you think England were, 
what was it, 139 for 5 and 170 for 6. 176 for 7, even. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It was, if it hadn't been for that Butler-Curran partnership, then they could quite easily have been shot out for 180. Um, And then all of a sudden, Sri Lanka bat and get 336. Because everyone was quite, like I say, it was to kind of follow on from that match-winning innings point I was trying to make. It's just that, at the end of the first, at the end of the first innings, everyone was like, "England have got plenty; they'll win this easy, right?" And then Sri Lanka got more than them, right? Yeah. And everyone was like, "Oh, okay. Well, maybe this is back in the balance, right?" This is English pundits now, right? And then in the second innings, England obviously passed them and set three hundred to win, and ever, all the English pundits were like, "Well, England will win this easy." But it's funny, isn't it, that I can't really remember anybody, even at the point when. In a relatively low-scoring game, Sri Lanka had a 45-run lead. I never really saw anyone go, oh, maybe Sri Lanka can win this. No, no one, no one thought that at, at really at any sort of time. And I suppose that is a reflection of the fact that, that Sri Lanka aren't at their strongest at the moment. But it's also a reflection of the fact that you thought that England could take wickets at any moment. And it wasn't just because their spinners were stronger, I think. But it was moments of brilliance in the field, wasn't it? I mean, that incredible Jennings parry to get rid of Karuna Ratner, who who is being massively underestimated in this conversation. You know, he, he scored one of the innings of all time against South Africa to win a game earlier this early this year. He got 150 odd out of 240 or 250 runs. You know, it was a truly... He's, he's a really good batsman. He was so unlucky in both innings, out to a brilliant piece of fielding from Stokes in the first innings, out to a brilliant piece of fielding from Jennings in the second innings. Jennings gets that other little short leg catch. What Sri Lanka didn't have was any moments of inspiration. You know, they held on in the game, because, partly because of England's approach, which was to be so attacking that it was going to come unstuck. You know, when you lose your first, was it six or seven wickets to the sweep shot? I think it was first six. Um, obviously people are saying, why are they sweeping? There was one point when England were 86 for six using the sweep shot and 141 for none not using the sweep shot. Tension is that they're getting those 141 runs because it's changing and disrupting the bowler's length. So you were seeing England adopt an approach. And, you know, Vitush Nantaraja wrote about this eloquently while a lot of pundits were complaining about England's approach. Um, and he said, you know, at least England are going to go into this this series and not die wondering. Whereas before they've used the pad and back close together. They've shuffled around at the crease. They've, they've just tried to stick in and it's a it's been a complete disaster. This time they looked like they had a plan. It was quite a, it's quite an extreme plan. They all stuck to it and it made for, you know, a really exciting and different approach. And amidst all this, you know, not many players have been able to score hundreds, and England have unearthed Ben Folks. I mean, Ben Folks, how has he been out in this series? The first two games, he was out slogging. First time because there were nine down, and he was with Anderson. Second time because he's trying to get quick runs, and he gets 38 and 35, which is, you know, what Butler, if he had the gloves, that's what he'd be renowned for doing, or Gilchrist in a similar situation. In the first innings in the last game, he was out when he wasn't out and forgot to use DRS or thought he'd hit it or something. So, you know, this is a guy who hasn't actually been out properly <laughs> pretty much in the whole series. He's got the most brilliant gloves. It's like they've unearthed the thing that balances their team by having someone like folks at seven who can adapt his game. That's awesome. They've discovered that Sam Curran, I mean, I, I was slightly concerned with Sam because I, I really rate him as cricket. But I just thought he's a bit too young the test cricket to be an all-rounder but actually his batting is so stellar i mean he's he's got nine scores of 20 or over out of 11 in his I, first with list. sam i think he's in my mind i think he's going to end up being a player that bats six or seven and bowls eight overs a day more than he's going to be a frontline seam he's adapted to sri lankan conditions with the ball turning as a left-hander really well if you think back to another player that I, I rate, I still rate, but I rated him very highly when he got picked, Ben Duckett. Ben Duckett, when he first you know arrived for his first game in Bangladesh, bless him, looked absolutely all at sea, didn't he? You know, Mahadi Hassan bowled him a ball that, that turned a good distance, and he thought, uh, this is what I'm used to. 
Now, it's not like Sam Curran has faced vast amounts of spin on spinning pitches in his life. He's played an awful lot of cricket in England where there aren't a lot of high-quality spin bowlers and there aren't a lot of pitches on which you face it. You know, Siderabad um, accepted. And that's another story. I mean, we could talk about how Siderabad's really good for English cricket, by the way, because of what it's managed to do by getting Jack Leach, you know, used to bowling on those pitches and some people actually batting on something that resembles a subcontinent. Um, so, you know, Curran's emergence has been superb. Uh, the, what Butler gives to the team, his 63 in the first innings of the second test was just immaculate and was exactly what he's there to do. Uh, he, he got 30-odd again in the second innings, didn't he? I mean, his consistency this year has belied the critics. Every time he gets out for naught, by the way, he should be dropped. I don't understand this country. They've got the most wonderful talent known to mankind in Joss Butler. And he has to make one mistake and it's all ridiculous that he's being picked. And they forget all the incredibly good things he's done. Uh, England have been able to leave out Johnny Bairstow and Stuart Broad, which presumably, you know, they won't be doing in the ashes. You'd think in different conditions, they're not going to play three spinners. Indeed, when they go to the West Indies, Jason Holder's picked up 33 wickets this year at an average of 12, which suggests to me that, you know, West Indian wickets might be starting to, you know, be more conducive to the seam bowler. Shannon Gabriel as well has prospered. So it means that England have got uh, the opportunity, I guess, to balance their side in different ways, in different conditions, which is something that we didn't think possible. Uh, There's still, you know, the white whale of Australia because I don't think they've uncovered the fast bowler yet. Everyone wanted Ollie Stone to play because they thought, wouldn't that be fun, you know, get a proper fast bowler in. Thank God they weren't tempted to do that because these conditions, there's, there's, you know, Sri Lanka have picked Saranga Lakmal and he's bowled slightly more overs than we might have expected, but it's still sod all. And that's the only seam bowler they've got. Yeah, no, I, so, I think, I think you can't, you can't, you've got to play the conditions, don't you? I mean, I suppose yeah. the whole sweet thing I think was fascinating, wasn't it? That again, it's the whole thing, again, the way that people kind of consume cricket and think about it is that batsmen need to score runs and score them quickly, but without taking any risks where they'll get out, right? Yeah. And the reason why cricket is brilliant and the reason why it's so much fun to watch is that there is a consummate risk involved with every single reward. So a forward defensive is taking very little risk, but it's going to bring you no runs. A nudge into the leg side is less risk. A cover yeah. drive is... is, is is more is more risk. A cover drive is more risk. A smash over mid wicket for six is more risk. And each of those things brings you more reward for the yeah. risk that you take. It's a it's a risk reward game. That's why it works. But yeah, you're right about kind of the disruption. I mean, the sweeping did get come to a point where it was just a bit. I mean, it was almost it was almost surreal. There was um, yeah. Kim Jared Kimber who you know was the Bet noir and infant terrible of cricket and cricket writing has now turned himself into a bit of a stats geek, um, yeah. which I'm quite pleased about, really, in a way, because um, he's just got as ever with Jared. He doesn't do anything by halves, does he? So no. he has to get completely obsessed with something. But he was tweeting, I think it's from Crickviz that he's got these numbers. But he was tweeting out that the second test had the most sweeps ever recorded in a test, and this goes back to 2006. So including sweeps, reverse sweeps, and slog sweeps. In England's second innings, there were 86 sweeps for seven wickets and 122 runs. And in the match for both, it was 254 sweep shots for 12 wickets and 327 runs. And no test before this one had more than five wickets from sweep shots. So the sweep shot took a tenfer in yeah. this particular test. Got, and, and, and got a triple hundred, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, 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 so it's, you know, again, it's about kind of, it's taking a more nuanced approach to it, isn't it? And, and for whatever reason, you've got to think that this England side, as as flawed as it is, still has a huge amount of talent and has beaten India at home, who've been the number one ranked test side for a while, and then have gone overseas and won in Sri Lanka. Now, the point about seamers in the West Indies, now that, that those, those tests are going to be at the Darren Sammy Stadium uh, in St. Lucia, the Antigua, uh, Viv Richard Stadium, and the um, and Barbados. in Barbados. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of uh, there'll, there'll be something for the seamers in St. Lucia. St. Lucia, in my mind, is probably the best pitch in the Caribbean in terms of giving something to everybody. 
And you saw that with Shannon Gabriel's tenfer in that in that match that was played there a couple of months back. Um, but in Barbados, it's just a bit up and down still. See, I mean, the pitches for the CPL this year, they were a bit too paced and weren't all that great. Now, I'd, I said this and I talked about this in the last podcast, but I think the Viv Richards ground's interesting because I just don't think many people have seen much cricket there. There's been cricket there, but not at a particularly high standard that's been televised because the... Yeah. Yeah, I'm, the, not, I'm not aware of it at all. I don't really know what to expect. Well, the, the, the recently concluded one-day cup competition in the West Indies was played in Port of Spain in at the Queen's Park Oval and in Kensington Oval. And then there's been some regional four-day cricket around. But I don't know if Antigua's been used. I think it's more likely that you'd end up using that they'd end up using Warner Park for Leeward Island games than Antigua. Um, so I, I just thought, so it'll be interesting. I suppose kind of the test that will be the three games that have got coming up in the Women's World T20, won't they? In terms of what we can yes. expect from that pitch, because obviously it's going to be that Viv Richards Stadium that's being used. Um, we won't really be able to tell how that works for the pace bowlers, unfortunately. I mean, we'll be able to see if it takes spin, but there, there won't be that much pace no, on the show. There's no, there's no Leah Tahuru, is there? Tahuru um, or, Sh- or Shabnim Ishmael, no. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, and I of mean, course, yeah. no Catherine Brunt either, uh, who is. No. Although, having said that, to kind of come go completely off topic, I think Shiver's been absolutely brilliant with the new ball for England, um, in the absence of Brunt. Um, Gee, well, yeah, she has. I mean, it's it, 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 it that surprised me as well because obviously I'd taken the view that uh, England's loss of Catherine Brunt wasn't the worst thing because they'd be able to go in there with you know four spinners on slow pitches. And suck the life out of the oppo. It's turned out, of course, that their most effective bowlers have been Siver and um, and Shrubsell. So it drives it drives me mad that we say all these things with such certainty about what pitches are going to do, and you know we're always wrong. I don't yeah, know why. It's, it's, we never learn. We no, never... it's the amount of times that people. I mean, right? Okay. So as well with the whole spinning pitches thing, and again, this is a little bit of a tangent. But what's this podcast about if it's not about random tangents? Is that I personally don't understand why a pitch turning from ball one is a bad thing. And it just seems to be kind of like a pro-English-Australian bias as far as pitches are concerned, where there's this idea that you have to have a pitch that gives something to the seamers from... Why? It's the same for... It's not as if one team bats on one pitch and one team bats on another. And some of the absolute best test matches... I can remember I've been on absolutely turning pitches. That Mumbai test in 2012, I think, is probably yeah. one of my favourite ever because that was turning so much yeah, from day one. And then to think of that same series, what was the one, that the last Nagpur? And the Nagpur oh. test of that same thing did nothing for anybody. Yeah, and that was probably, I mean, I think, I can't remember who said it at the time, but the groundsman may as well have just spray-painted I hate cricket hate over 22 cricket. yards <laughs> rather than have that pitch because it was just it was a famous Trent Bridge test wasn't it it's, it's, it basically it was that pitch it was absolutely ghastly but the, but the pitch you want at Old Trafford that's the pitch everybody wants turns it it turns and it bounces and it comes to you. I mean I, I know this is like a sort of alchemy that's too much to expect but isn't that what we really want because actually it's really good fun watching spinners when the when the ball bounces you want a quickish pitch for spinners you want a quick for, to make for the turn, everybody turn fun because if, if you just get the ball that turns, this is the misconception everyone had about this last pitch. That yeah, it turned, but it actually turned a bit faster on days one and two than it did on days three, four, and five. So instead of making it harder to bat because it was going to turn a bit more, actually, if it turns a bit more, it starts to turn way too much. You know, and the ball's just beating the bat if it's doing anything. It looks great on telly, but it's not really taking wickets. What you want is when it bounces. Wasn't it noticeable to you that? On that pitch, the the catches at short leg, I think there were two of them. One was straight off the middle of the bat, was a reflex catch with the bottom left hand, and the other one was well anticipated off a full-blooded sweep and parried. Where are all those wickets that are, in my imagination, what you get on a turning pitch, where it spits and you're playing it off your hip and it comes off the glove and you're caught at leg slip or you're caught at short leg? Uh, You get bat pads, you know. None of those were really happening. And that's really the sort of pitch that we want because then there's a bit in there as well for the quicker bowlers because it's starting to go up and down. 
So there's jeopardy when they bowl and it's coming through nicely to the keeper and it's popping and it's bouncing up off the spinners. And then, you know, you that's that's when you've got, to me, total perfection. But it, it strikes me that the art of being a groundsman isn't as easy as we armchair critics think it must be. Oh, no, it's ridiculous. I mean, there was, there was okay, so the, the, where, where it struck me in terms of how difficult it was to kind of talk about CPL, which Tickner will be annoyed at me about because he doesn't think I should talk about it. He laughs at me when I talk about it. But right, okay. So at CPL this year, they had the two semi, the two first playoff games, uh, first place second and third place fourth in Guyana, right? Yeah. And they were a day apart, right? Uh, and the groundsman there had to try and get these pitches ready. Now, Four years ago, 115-120 would have been par in Guyana. Uh, and there's been amazing work that goes on there um, to try and get that pitch to be significantly better. I remember from from the World T20, which England won, that was a horror pitch, wasn't it? Only Mahela Jaya Wardner could score any runs on that pitch, if you remember. He was able to get a sort of 70-odd and all lesser mortals you know, couldn't get it off the square, could they, Guyana? So the guy that runs it is a guy called Wazim Habib, right? He's a lovely guy, right? And he's been doing it for, I think, three, four years. He's been in charge of that pitch, and we've seen a steady improvement, right? But in terms of how things can go against you, he had a pitch prepared for the semi-final, right? And it needed a bit more drying out, and it pissed down with rain for a day a, on the day before and the day of the game. And the pitch was, the ground was absolutely fine to play on. Right, but you ended up having a game where the par score—I think it was one by a six off the second to last ball by Guyana. I think it was so Hamvia that bashed it down the ground. Right, that was the first game. The next day, same pitch, sun shined all day, and the par score was one nine five. Yeah, and it's like it's so difficult. There's so many things that can go wrong. And I think, that, and as well, you don't know what's going to happen until someone actually has a go at playing cricket on it. So Paul Wazim is there trying to get this pitch right. There's a bit of rain around and it ends, and everyone's like, oh, it's back to the bad old days of Guyana. You know, look at this pitch. It shouldn't have knockout games and all the rest. And then literally the next day, a team successfully chased down 190. It's, it's a bit like going to the theatre. And if you only go and see one performance of, of King Lear or something, I don't know, and um, Mark Rylance forgets his lines and the, and the set falls down, then, uh, and we do it all the time. You know, women's cricket is bedeviled by this. One game, there are a couple of drop catches, there's a fumble in the deep, there's some overthrows, you know, suddenly women can't field. It, our, our threshold for tolerance is getting lower and lower. And we don't seem to appreciate that you've got to view these things in the round, you know? Yeah, no, and I think that's kind of the point I was making that I kind of perhaps was a little bit guilty of in terms of talking about Sri Lanka being terrible Mm. in that I was kind of... No, I don't think they're a good side, but maybe I was overstaying it a little bit. But we do, we judge things on... You know, someone... I tweeted, uh, talking of the women's cricket thing, which really pisses me off because if you watch a lot of it, you see some really great stuff, right? Mm. But if you watch... Like you said, if you watch one game in isolation, then you might see... I've seen some world-class cricketers, male cricketers, put down absolute sitters. Now, if I only watched that, I'd be there going, well, that person's a terrible fielder. Um, So it's kind of like... And as well, there's kind of the added pressure of circumstances, all the rest of it. I think I tweeted out there was that game, the England against West Indies last group game in St. Lucia, which had an amazing crowd... Which and yep. I genuinely think when you've got a big crowd at Darren Sammy Stadium, it's one of the best grounds in the world. They're brilliant. I mean, they need a winning side for them to come out. But when they do come out, it's absolutely amazing. Um, and it was just it was there was just something for everybody in that game. You know, it was yeah. it was it was a fascinating game to watch. And there was some crappy bits of chaos. fielding. There was chaos at the end, wasn't there? I mean, there was poor old Dunkers missing uh, horrible Skyer. There was Fran Wilson missing a catch out in the deep. There was overthrows. But, you know, again, the, the, these these women are playing in front of that person and shouty. And anyone could lose their composure. Yeah, well, there was a great moment. 
There's a great moment in front of the Johnson Charles stand where Wyatt took a, a catch and turned around and gave the crowd some, which I thought was just absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Because you'd obviously been getting stick no end from everybody else. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, but that's great, isn't it? And, you know, that's, that's sort of the point. We, we watch the sport because if they were all automata and it went up in the air and they caught it, a bit like happens quite a lot in baseball. You know, goes up in the air, they get a catch, they got a mitt, this is what they do. You know, they're professional fielders. That's all they ever do is field, it seems to me, these guys, because they don't learn anything else. They learn how to stand out in the deep and catch eyeballs all day long. Now, you know, that, that sort of renders the game slightly less interesting. A bit like basketball for me is slightly less interesting because what you're watching is for when they fail to get a basket, not when they get a basket, you know? So... I, I love it when the wheels fall off I, because that's what you're watching sport for. That's the point at which they become human. That's the point you identify um, with their flaws, isn't it? Yet at the same time, we then say things like they don't deserve to wear the shirt. How dare they get paid all this money? It's it's basically the, the core hypocrisy of the sport fan. It happens in every sport. It's not just cricket. It happens in all sports. So, you know, can't get too wound up about it. What we're saying is the worst thing about cricket is cricket fans. That's what you're saying. BBC's Test Match special commentator, <laughs> Dan Norcross, yeah. is saying he hates cricket fans. Um, the worst thing about all sports is um, is exactly this kind of assumption that sports stars owe us a perfect performance every time they go out to play. Because that's just madness. They don't play on computer. Oh, if you just... want that, play PlayStation, where... You know, if you input the things right, then somehow your Lionel Messi is going to dribble through eight people and score a wonder goal every time. But that, that's that—that's no fun. <laughs> well, even then, though, when you watch that, is that you watch like now people will watch people playing computer games. Um, the, yeah, yeah. The, I've heard this phenomenon. I, it's quite extraordinary to me. And it's the same thing: is that you watch these people doing it that are very good at it, that then who may make mistakes or pull off something brilliant and all the rest of it. That's kind of it, you know. It's it's people will, people will. Um, well, you came to the CPL draft, didn't you? Which was in one of these esports arenas. Yeah. Um, which is a remarkable facility. Um, yeah, it's mad. Um, I still don't really understand it, but I think that's because I'm I'm forty in five months, and as a result, don't really understand such things. Um, I'm, I'm too old you need to speak to my 12 year old son to have more of an understanding oh, <laughs> once you're things. over 40 you're definitely too old oh, just, mate I'm not looking forward to it um, I need to uh, uh, all the best people are 40 in 2019 there's me, Chris Gale yeah basically, that's it basically yeah. the same people <laughs> um, right okay I think we've probably rambled enough I'm not sure we really went in any particular direction what we haven't discussed is what's going to happen in the next test what, what do England do? Do they pick the same team? I mean, Sam Curran's got a little bit of a side niggle. Um, and also, what I want to ask you, because I've asked loads of people this, on the basis of what you've seen here, right, what is, because Sri Lanka's conditions are very unusual. England are not picking three spinners, possibly anywhere else in the world, not even perhaps in India, three spinners. It's, it's very unusual. So what is your ideal England team on what on the basis of what you've seen, firstly for the West Indies and secondly for Australia. And I will preface this by saying I can't I can't imagine an England against Australia match next year where Chris Wokes isn't at the forefront of your mentality. He's got to play in England. Well if you're playing if you're trouble. playing in if you're playing in England, you have as things stand at the moment, you have Burns and Jennings opening, right? They're the people that have got, whether or not they're still there at the start of the summer, I think depends on so you keep you're keeping Jennings. You keep, on, yeah, on yeah well, I mean, he scored. He scored a decent. of a hundred against a bunch of spinners. You're keeping Jennings. Well, who are, I would I would potentially replace Jennings if I thought there was a replacement. We've been struggling to replace Andrew Strauss since 2012. Chris Wokes, get Chris Wokes to open. <laughs> um, so right, so I think I'd probably end up keeping those two. I'd tell Joe Root, you're batting three. Fucking suck it up. Yeah, we don't have another number three. You're clearly the best batsman. You bat three. Right, end yep. of. Yeah, then I think what you do is you say to Johnny Bairstow, you bat four, right? Because I've said for a while, I think Johnny Bairstow is probably England's second best batsman after Joe Root in test matches. And I think having him keep wickets, like having a Maserati being used as a tractor, 
just yeah. let him bat, right? I, I understand that, yeah. Butler at five. Stokes, Butler. Stokes, at, Stokes at six, right? Then you've got Moeen and Folks, bat them wherever you want. Go They're on. one of their best batsmen. Go on, sorry. But yeah, okay. Yeah. Like Folks and Moe, now you've got Folks, 9, 10, Folks 11. Folks and Moe, right? 9, 10, yeah. 11, if you're playing in England, are Wokes, Broad, Anderson. Now so you're leaving out Sam Curran. Yeah. He's played seven seven matches, one all seven, played five in England, and when they dropped him, England lost, and when they brought him back, they won. But As I think if, if, you're, if you're looking... if you So if you're looking... If you're looking for England's three best seam bowlers in English conditions, it's Broad Anderson and Wokes. You've got you've got Stokes already. I mean, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I mean, you can I mean, right. I, okay, so if I was if I if I was picking the same team for the West Indies, yeah, come I on, would, let's have it. I would basically have the same team, right? But what I would have is instead of having Wokes. I would have Adil Rashid, but I'd still play Broad and Anderson. So you'd pick Moeen and Adil. You'd yeah. leave out Jack Leach, the the one spinner who's got the most control, who's taking all these wickets. Yeah, because I like watching Adil bowl. What's with it? What's with your Adil stuff? I mean, you know, I that's love Adil. I love Adil Rashid. I mean, you, if, if to be honest, if, if you told me it was Leach instead of Rashid, I'd be fine with that too. I think Moeen so needs. To, I think Moeen needs to play. I mean, the mad thing about Moeen is. He'll be criticised when he fails with the ball, even if he's scoring runs. And he'll be criticised if he fails with the bat, even if he's taking wickets. Well, did, did you see did You see that um, um, esteemed editor of Wisdom, Lawrence Boo, the man for whom I have a lot of time and, and thoroughly respect his opinions, after he'd taken eight wickets in the first test match, gave him a score of six out of ten because he got one and three batting at three. And I sort of thought... Isn't that a bit unfair? That's I mean, the thing, really, is that you always I, say so many all-rounders are like, oh, they've got two bites of the cherry and two pints to be part of this game. Basically, if, if Moeen Ali was expected to bat at 10 and had taken eight wickets, Lawrence would have given him eight or nine out of 10, wouldn't he? Yeah. yeah you yeah. know. It, well, in two test matches, he's taken, what, 14 wickets? Uh, six, yes, that's right. Yes, test, 14, yeah. test and eight in there. Yeah. yeah, and... and I, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I don't understand. I mean, something I, I do quite regularly is retweet criticism of Moeen on a fairly regular basis because when he's done well, because people will see him play an outrageously loose cover drive where he nicks off the third slip yeah. and will be furious at him without realising that he's won as many games for England as almost anybody. Um, and I saw, and an, I saw an, in that match as well, weren't he, in all probability? I so. saw an outrageous stat about his strike rate um, in test matches, which is just phenomenally low as well. You know, like bearing in mind, he came into that side after Monty Panesar had basically imploded and wasn't wasn't really an option anymore. And yep. Graham Swan's shoulder had given up, and he'd left the Ashes. He came into the, the, that summer of two thousand and fourteen, wasn't it? Which was That's dreadful, right, yeah. right? And he was basically their one bright spot. But since then, he's been probably one of England's most consistent performers if you look at his batting and his bowling. Yeah. Um, well, with everything with the exception of the Australia series last year where, where everything went horribly wrong. He had an injury. He had an injury to a spinning figure. Um, he was he's the wrong type. He got sort of unfairly criticised from that point. But actually, in, in fairness to him, he said when he was left out, you know, he was grateful to be left out. He sort of felt he needed to be left out. That's the other thing about him. He's just... he's Where we're struggling to work out what to do with Johnny Bairstow is in part because of Johnny's determination to, to keep wicked and bat where he wants to bat. Whereas, you know, Moeen Ali, he just goes wherever you want him to go. He does whatever you want him to do. And yet he's still the subject of consistent criticism. It's, that's another mad thing about cricket at the moment. But now what you've done with the West Indies, you said you were going to bring Wokes in and you were going to take each out, which means there's still no space for broad. Uh, oh no! No, I said I said that got... I put Broad in. I see. You've dropped Curran. Yeah. And who else did you drop? You dropped Curran and, Curran and Leach, or Curran and Adil, one or the other. I see. Yeah. I see. Um, you no. know, it's just, but yeah, I mean, on the Moeen thing, right? He's he's taken 159 wickets at 37, right? Which is a all right. Bit... Not brilliant. It's all right. Yep. 
Right. It's a better record as a spinner than Ashley Giles has in Test cricket. Yeah. Yeah, but no, but no one was saying that Ashley Giles was one of them. No, of but Ashley Giles played. Yeah, I, I mean, Ashley Giles didn't get the criticism that... I mean, he was subject to some criticism, but yeah. he didn't get the criticism that Moeen had, right? You know, he uh, Giles took 143 wickets at 40 and and Moeen's taken 159 at 37, right? Yeah. And then he scored 2,600 runs at 31. It's not bad, is it? With 500. So you compare that with Andrew Flintoff's batting record. Yeah. Flintoff got 500, nearly 4,000 runs at the same average. He's a, a Murray and Ali takes more wickets per match and scores more runs per match than Andrew Flintoff but, uh, across his whole career, which is I mean, the thing is, that's... It, amazing. That much, you know. Again, we were talking before we press record about statistics being bollocks at times. But I mean, you've got to kind of take into account for the fact that Flintoff was only really the Freddie that we all fell in love with for about three years of that ten-year career. Really. That's very true. If you think, if you, if you, true, you can't be too root mathsy about it. You know, no, no, no. Like, but if you, if you yeah. think of when the point when Andrew Flintoff was this talismatic, amazing cricketer. It wasn't really until the summer of 2004, I don't think, that he yeah, was like I'd, I'd, a I'd world beater. And then obviously he had the Ashes in 05. And then he was pretty dreadful because he was struggling with his knee and had a big part to play in the Ashes win in 09. There was that remarkable five for at Lords, wasn't there? Um, yes. But I think if you, you know, he made his test debut in 1998 and had played his last test in 2009. But I reckon probably the point where Flintoff would have got into this. Right, okay, the point, okay, here's, here's one for you. Would Flintoff, outside of those two or three years, have got into the England side from 2010 to 2013? Uh, not before 2004, not, two, not, not the pre-2004 version of exactly. Flintoff. And, and this is sort of, this is a sort of very long-winded tangential point I'm trying to make, really, is that for all the fact that we we feel instinctively that this England team is not the finished article by any means and is sort of mid-ranking. The weird thing about it is that I reckon there are about 14 players who are trying to fit into 11 slots. Um, and and in the last batting from, well, about nine, actually, you would have batting from four till nine or four till eight almost. And that makes everything seem very confusing. But Maybe, and this is where I think Ben Jones wrote a superb piece for the most part um, the other day. It, maybe England are on the verge of playing a totally different form of cricket from the one that either they played before or indeed anyone else. You know, Australia have consistently had six batsmen, a bowler, uh, six, six batsmen, a keeper, and four bowlers, haven't they? I mean, that's been the way they've gone. They've been blessed with having the likes of Warren and Gilchrist who have been able to balance that side. Just recently, they brought in Mitchell Marsh, but he's really not, you know, much of an all-rounder. And they have had Shane Watson, but for the most part, they've gone six-one-four. England at the moment are actually sort of three people that aren't quite right at the top, and then perfect people from four till eleven. And our issue is that actually, you know. Who do, who do you leave out? Maybe England are on the verge of playing this total cricket that Ben Jones refers to, in which instead of fixating about all the old truths and all the old shibboleths, that you've got to have these solid guys up the top of the order. If you look at world cricket this year, opening batsmen everywhere are struggling. I'm trying to pick um, a test team for this year. And in all honesty, the two best openers this year have probably been uh, Karuna Ratner, um, I mean, she, without a shadow of a doubt, Karina Ratner. And really no one else. So I picked Prithvi Shaw because he's had two test matches and he's going to be a, an all-time great. Opening batsmen have really struggled. You know, number threes, with the exception of Kane Williamson, have really struggled. It's not just in county cricket. It's not just in England that this is a problem. But England's great advantage over other countries is that you could genuinely pick an England team that made total sense for the Ashes that had Sam Curran batting at 10. You could have um, Stokes, Butler, Folks at 5, 6, 7, Moeen, Wokes, Curran, Anderson. That is a team that could make perfect sense. 
And at that point, you sort of are playing total cricket, as he describes it, a bit like, you know, Dutch total football, where the ability to adapt and the differing styles you've got, with your left arm over and your different kinds of fast bowler, different conditions, able to counterattack at any point in the innings, able to slow things down a bit as well with folks, could genuinely make England a really exciting side. And I know that sounds mad because, especially on this podcast, we always want to downplay the chances of England being any good and being correctly cynical about things that are going right and going wrong. But I just have a weird feeling that there's there's something in my water, Geeky. There's something happening. There's something strange in the state of Denmark. And I think it's quite a good thing. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's kind of kind of flowing on from the ODI side. I mean, the ODI side has quite regularly had guys that have scored. I think there was one team where they didn't, like the only person who hadn't, at the time that team played, that hadn't scored a first-class 100 was Chris Jordan, and he's subsequently done so. Yeah, right, exactly. You've got Liam Plunkett batting at 11, potentially. You know, and Liam Plunkett's got, I don't know, Two, two or three first-class hundreds, I think. The top eight in that side, in the regular side that played last summer, had a higher strike rate than Kevin Peterson. I yeah, mean, I, that is, that is mental. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, the, the, and cricket is changing, and I think it's changing for the better. And I think one of the things I think where cricket can be, uh, you know, it's losing. It's something that I saw. Um, I think it might have been Vedushin saying it was about kind of like cricket losing its obsession with the past wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing you know it's kind of the whole idea that bowlers were quicker in the 1960s than they are now and I'm not I I remain hugely unconvinced that that's true um yes me too and I think I've I've got the other day that pointed out exactly that that when they did a speed test in the 1970s um Jeff Thompson averaged 142 kilometers an hour and was top uh, Michael Holding was averaging 135 kilometres an hour. Now, you don't know if the speed gun's right or not, but it, could it just be maybe that things are speeding up? Everything else in life speeds up. I you know, our athletes think... get quicker, people get stronger, the the fitness regimes are different. Maybe, just maybe, we're always blighted not to see what's in front of our nose and only really appreciate it 10 years after it's gone. I genuinely think, and this has got no basis in science, and I'm very far from being an expert, so it's a little bit Brexit. Right? Mm. <laughs> so bear with me, because right? it's a bit. I mean, I've just out. I think the reason why bowlers look quicker in old footage is because of the frame rate of the cameras. Is that right? I so might... twenty-four frames per second in those days. Do you know? No, it could be bullshit, and you know, tweet me. If you think it is, but do, do you know what I mean? You know, like you know when you watch like old films of people walking down the street. Ah, uh, well, that, well, that was that was certainly true. You know, in the in the nineteen tens and twenties and thirties, I I think the reason why they look quicker is because they didn't have helmets, and so they jerk their heads out of the way at the last minute, um, and they play shots differently. And I think that what you, what you're basically seeing is that the reaction of the batsman is different to the ball that's coming yeah. down at. The, I just, I just, it seems mad to me that in the time since the nineteen sixties, the world record for the fastest a man can run at a hundred meters has dropped by a second and a half. But we're saying that guys who didn't really have any sort of fitness regime and spent Sunday afternoons eating Yorkshire puddings and drinking ale in the pub were quicker. Just does it? It does seem weird. It does, it? doesn't it? You start, it does seem weird. You know, it just it does seem like a bit a bit of bullshit. Right. Anyway. Let's finish this off. Uh, if you've yeah. listened to this and I've actually published it, it means that I've managed to sort out the absolute horrendous mess that's been the audio on this podcast, which I'm sure you're grateful. My name's oh, Peter Miller. Hey. I've been joined as ever by one of my favourite people, Daniel Norcross. I've really enjoyed our rambling chat. It's been great. Uh, I will be back again. Hopefully, I'm, tr- I'm genuinely going to try and do these more regularly because I do like doing them. And, you know, the winter's the time when I've got a little bit more time uh, to do such things. That's another terrible thing about winter. I want four. And How many have you got to do? I've got to do Ashwin, Ishant Sharma and KL Raul. Ooh. And it's just like Kohli, I've kind of talked about how yeah. he's basically already a great batsman, but this is his chance to be considered a great captain if he wins in Australia. That's kind of what I've gone for. 
Um, Ashwin's interesting because you got Ashwin being up against Nathan Lyon, haven't you? Where where opposing off spinners have always struggled in Australia. Yeah. Um, you kind of sense that they're going to need him, but but here's something about Ashwin. Did you not sense that India completely got it wrong by failing to pick Jadeja in England? I I just wonder.